Hi everyone, my name's Lauren, if I haven't met you, I'm going to be um, reading from the Bible today, and our readings come from um, Amos chapters 8 and 9, and then a further reading from Romans, and those readings start on page 6 of your zine, so please read along with me. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is right for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile, and it will be stirred up, and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make you all wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Bathsheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and, set, and sets its foundations on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. 
Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword, all those who say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile." They will rebuild the ruined cities and and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And the passage from Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Hi, everyone. Uh, Yeah, heaps thankful for this opportunity again to to preach, um, partly because the process of writing a sermon... um, yeah, it's, it's just a really good time in uh, yeah, praying and working out what the text says and praying again and working out again and reading some stuff and, and all those things really help um, grow you as a Christian. So I, I recommend it to, you know, I'm sure some of you do that already in preparing Bible studies and things like that. Yeah, it's, um, it's really good. So I am thankful. Thanks, Craig. Um, Early on in uh, C.S. Lewis's um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, four children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who describe Aslan to them as a lion. 
Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or, or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What adjective might you and I use when we come to describe God? Where do we get our knowledge of what God is like? Perhaps as we read different books of the Bible, we might react differently towards God and the things that he says and does. When do you find that you use the phrase, God is good, for example? We might say it when something good happens to us. Uh, perhaps even in sickness and suffering, we can say God is still good. What about when God judges in anger? We're in the third of the sermon series from the Minor Prophets, and, and today we're looking at the book of Amos. And if you're anything like me, you might find some Old Testament books like Amos a little bit hard to grasp. As confusing and unsettling as they are, the Lord Jesus and the New Testament apostles affirm their truth and importance to the gospel message. So we can read Amos as an essential part of the gospel message. We can know that God, as presented in Amos, is the same God who came to us in Jesus Christ. Some prophecy books tell us a story like Jonah, the man who, who was swallowed by a big fish, and Daniel, uh, the man who was imprisoned in a lion's den. These books have an overarching storyline, but when we turn the pages to Amos, we don't really get much of a storyline. Some say it looks more like a collage or a mixed-media artwork you might find in a gallery made up of objects, photos, type, maybe even sound and film. And this mixed-media artwork that Amos presents to us has one message. The just God of the world will not tolerate sin anymore. He will judge all human evil and will restore his kingdom. Another way to describe the book would be like looking down a very long and dark tunnel with a faint light coming through at the end. So we enter this tunnel at verse 1 when we're introduced to Amos, who prophesied this message during the reign of Jeroboam, king of Israel. And because the neighboring nations were weakened, this king used the opportunity to take back the lands that once belonged to Israel. This gave them control over trade routes. It brought commercial prosperity. And as you can imagine, it was a pretty good deal for rich people. But this was a great time, a time of great injustice against the poor. And the people of Israel even used their religion to do evil. God's people were leading lives that were very far from God's way. 
There's a lot we can learn from Amos if we were to look at it in detail. Um, But if we were to step back and see the big picture, um, all that Amos says begins with God. The book is dominated and shaped by God. So my points try and zoom into different, different images within this collage of Amos to answer the question, what is the God of Amos like? So it would help you if you have Bibles, there's books next to you and if you have your phones, because I'll be jumping through and it will help you to kind of um, yeah, know where I'm going. So first image, the God of Amos is awesome and sovereign over all people. There was a time when the adjective awesome was used a lot, way more than these days, particularly in the awesome 90s and 2000s. And I remember a friend pointing out to me what the word actually meant, and it meant extremely impressive or daunting, like the awesome power of a volcano. Amos begins the book with, the Lord roars from Zion. I wonder how the first hearers reacted to that. Thinking of God in this way demands our full attention. He is awesome. He's majestic. Even terrifying. And from this verse flow a series of roars from God against Israel's neighboring nations. Verse 3, for three sins of Damascus, even for four I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, says the Lord. Verse 6, for three sins of Gaza, even for four I will not relent, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Verse 9, for three sins of Tyre. Verse 11, for three sins of Edom. For three sins, even for four. It's a way of saying that these nations were overflowing with sin, as if these sins were piling up on top of each other and have now become a mountain of evil. The evil acts described here are horrific. The threshing of Gilead, for example, was a cruel torture of Israelites who were living in Syrian regions. You didn't need to know the law of Moses to recognize these as barbaric crimes, Not even pagan nations thought this behavior was good. But these crimes weren't just against Israel. God's anger shown in these verses are towards crimes against all people. The God of Amos is the sovereign ruler over all nations. He isn't just concerned for Israelites. He made all people and all people are valuable to him. And how they live their lives matters to him which is why their sin offends him as well. This is true not just in Amos' day, but in our time. Crimes against humanity are crimes against God. We can be sure that the crimes committed every day in our world don't go unmarked by God. But what offends God even more is the sin of his own people. Second image. The God of Amos is the God of justice. As we keep reading through, the message of judgment moves in from Israel's neighbors to Israel itself. 
chapter 2, verse 6. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And this goes on for quite a few verses. And they are accounts of utter injustice among God's people. Chapter 3, verse 1, we see God respond. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. The book began with judgments against the surrounding nations, but at the heart of the message of Amos is the punishment of his own chosen people. God graciously set his love on Israel. He chose them out of all the families of the world. With great power, he saved them from their slavery in Egypt and blessed them greatly. He gave them the law because his desire was for them to be a distinct people, marked by love and justice, with the purpose of pointing other nations towards the one true God. But even though they knew God personally, they remained completely unchanged. God saw the sin and injustice in the world, and he could no longer relent in judging his own precious people. And this subject occupies the rest of the book. It's not often that we think about God in this way, an angry, roaring lion, Is this the same God who we read about in John 3.16, the one who loves the world? We might be okay with God dealing with injustice in the world somehow, but where is his patience and mercy? We might even ask, has he given them enough chances, enough opportunities to turn around? Surely there's another way. As bleak as it is, this is an important part of Amos's message. But what we see is that in his wrath, God never stops being the God who graciously set his love on Israel. So much so that the destruction of Israel is a matter of deep, deep sorrow for him. Third image, the God of Amos laments over his people. Chapter 5 begins... Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Chapter 5 is like a funeral sermon, except it's ironic because nobody has died yet. But God has given these words of lament to Amos, giving us a glimpse into the love God has for them. Just like Jesus in Luke 19, who wept over Jerusalem when he entered it, we can read the book of Amos and imagine tears in his eyes. Verse 4 onwards, we see God pleading them to turn. Seek me and live. Seek me and live. And then in verse 14, Amos begins to plead. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as he says he is. you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. We can't deny that this book is filled 
with prophecies of judgment, but it is also true that throughout the book, Amos makes it really clear that there is hope for all who turn to God. He criticizes and energizes. He doesn't want them to stay there. Sadly, there is no indication that God's people take this advice, and so the judgment becomes more and more imminent. From chapter 7 onwards, we see God giving Amos visions of the judgment. And we see Amos this time pleading God to stop. Chapter 7, verse 2, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. But in chapter 8, the Lord says, The time is right for my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. Verse 3, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple would turn to wailing, many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Verse 11, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or, or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. This is tragic. The climax of the judgment is being described here as a famine of the word of God. The silence in verse 3 is the worst kind of silence. There is no word from the Lord. It is difficult for us to imagine how horrific this would be. It is only by God's mercy that we have the privilege of coming together as a family here in this church, as well as the many churches we find in Sydney. We only know the hope of the gospel because in God's mercy, his word came to Australia. And I think we need to keep praying that there wouldn't be a famine of God's word in our land that God would continue to have mercy. Fourth image, the God of Amos remembers mercy. Among all the bleak images of judgment we see in Amos, we can see that in his anger, he remembers his mercy. Chapter 9, verse 8, Surely the eyes of the the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy it, the descendants of Jacob Jacob, declares the Lord. How is it possible for Israel to be destroyed from the face of the earth and yet not totally be destroyed? That although in the beginning of chapter 9 we read that the death of all Israel is inescapable, but somehow some will escape it. The answer is in verses 9 and 10. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Looking at these verses, we can know that after God brings judgment, And while the people of Israel are scattered among the nations, some will die, but then some will be sifted out and preserved. 
people who will be sifted out are perhaps those who heard Amos's message and acted on it. The ones who heard Amos criticize and they were energized to turn to God. This is how the God of Amos remembers mercy. So, let's take a few, step back, a few steps back again. Because we can now look at the book of Amos like a piece of artwork that we've started to work out. And maybe your reaction as you hear all this is, wow, this is actually a lot to take in. That's the same feeling I had when studying Amos. And it struck me how much we can learn of God's character in this book. The God of Amos is awesome and sovereign over all people. He is the God of justice who will not tolerate sin and judges justly. He laments over his people because he loves them. And even in his anger... He remembers mercy. And finally, he's the God who restores his people. The long and dark tunnel that we've been in is over. It's like our train has come out the other end into bright sunlight. Chapter 9, verse 11, uh, describes a day when God will raise up the shelter of David and repair it. There's a lot involved in explaining what this means, um, but in summary, it refers to the everlasting kingdom that God established through King David. That through David's descendants, a king will come who will bring restoration. But the best part of this restoration is in verse 12. So, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord, who will do these things. The people who will restore God's kingdom aren't just the Israelites who will be sifted out. No, people from all nations who are called by his name will do it. To echo what Craig mentioned um, in his email this week, Amos, as well as the rest of the Old Testament, is a gateway to the gospel. And we see Paul explaining it to us in, Roman, in our Romans reading. Um, so Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that come, came by Christ Jesus. How incredible is that? Through faith in Jesus, you and I are given righteousness. But how God was going to bring this about was a mystery to Amos. But Paul tells us, verse 25... God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it 
to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God is good. And in Amos, in particular, we can see God's goodness in two ways. Firstly, in him justly dealing with sin in the world. And secondly, in his mercy to save people from sin and restore them. God does both of these through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection so that all who have faith in him and bear his name are restored. I guess C.S. Lewis got it right in describing Aslan not necessarily as safe, but good. Amos draws us to this God and King, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, our good God, the one who is just and the one who is gracious, that while we were still sinners, your only son, Jesus Christ, died to redeem us back to you. We ask that you would help us trust in your son and to live our lives as those who bear his name. And in his name we pray, amen.